I feel completely inadequate to go over today what we're going over because as I was going over the passage, I'm just so overwhelmed about who Jesus is. Like I don't even, I, I, I'm realizing as I'm, as I'm working through the passage, I don't even fully grasp it. I don't even fully get it. I don't even fully understand. I don't, I don't uh, Jesus is too much. He just is. And what, what, what kills me about it is, is I've read over John chapter 1 numerous times. And I'm just floored by everything that I see. Now, I know I preached a little long last week. And I'll tell you what, I actually initially was preparing verses 1 through 18 to go through. But we're only going to make it through nine verses, if that. Uh, so if, you, you're, if you're a big fan of expository preaching, today is your day, okay? Um, but I'm asking that you give me some grace here to try to get across everything that needs to get across. Because I, but number one, I'm just going to tell you, I'm not going to be able to do the satisfactory job that Jesus deserves. But number two, there's so much about him that, that I think a few brain cells are fried right now. Because of, I mean, I, I was I was in the chat, I was in the verse twelve, and I was just looking at this. I'm like, good grief! I'm already almost seven pages into this. This is two sermons, and so I had to just cut it. And and, and so, you guys gotten the, the 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 inkling that I'm weird yet? Anybody? Okay, good, good. Yeah, Tom's like, oh yeah, yeah. Thanks, Tom. That Christian encouragement can always come from you. I'm guaranteed of it. There's so much going on today, I even made little notes to go with my big notes. All right. So if we can, just for my own sake of mind and, and what I'm feeling right now, let's, let's pray one more time, please, if you don't mind. Father, thank You that we get to gather together, that we are believers in Christ with the indwelling Holy Spirit. Though this outer Man wastes away, the inner man is being renewed day by day. And we thank You, God, for such incredible work that You do in our lives. Nothing of which we do, but You speaking to us of obedience and and leading us in ways of righteousness and moving our consciences to understand more about You. Father, bless our time in this nine impactful verses. Help our minds to understand, to illuminate us with the power of Your Spirit. God, we need it. And God, I need the help with it, Father. That we begin to grasp the magnitude of what exactly is going on here. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you would, take your Bibles and turn open to John 1. And we are... Continuing on our um, foundational framework series. Actually, don't do that. Go to Hebrews 1 real quick. Apologize. See, that's, that's, that's what today's going to be like. Hebrews 1. We are, we are continuing our foundational framework series. And we have moved into the encounter of Jesus Christ. 
The Old Testament is preparatory for Christ. The New Testament is explanatory of Christ. And so everything that we see, whether Old Testament or New Testament, finds its culmination and pinnacle in who Jesus Christ is. Some of the ridiculous remarks that people make about that Jesus was just a good teacher. Well, he was a moral man. Well, he was someone that was highly respected. You cannot read the Bible and leave him like that. His life demands so much more. His words demand our careful thought. And once we feel like that we begin to get a grasp on them, he tells us something else that makes us stop and, and, and have to think again. It's amazing that the Bible tells us there was nothing amazing about him that we would look at him. He wasn't a fashion model. He wasn't uh, someone who would draw attention necessarily, except what we find that constantly snapped people into attention. I would say his miracles would be second. But the words that he spoke, you'd even have him standing up in the middle of a synagogue to expound upon something, and, and they would say, no one has ever spoken like this man. It might even been that he was reading the same thing from the book of Isaiah that they had just read last week. That's always fun when preachers do that, right? But the way that Jesus says it, the way that Jesus tells it, something about it just... It won't let me go. It grabs me. So let's set the foundation for what we're looking at. Number one, the Bible is God's self-revelation. God wants to be known. This is the way that He is known. And He wants everyone to know Him. He is the Lamb of God that has taken away the sins of the world. If that is the case, that means that the sin barrier that once stood between people and Him has been removed by the cross of Christ. That means that we have a story to tell every person. Number two, God is eternal and sovereign. He has always been and He always will be, but He is also a ruler. And how He rules is exactly in accordance with His nature. There is no hypocrisy found in God. There are no lies or deceit found in God. He is never leading us in a path of which he is trying to trick us and then trying to move us in a different direction. He doesn't have to be that way. A lot of people have often ascribed him that way, and that's not how he is. Everything he does is completely consistent with his character and who he is. The third one there on your list we are responsible agents held to a moral standard. God is the creator of all things. Since He is the creator, we are His creatures. Automatically, there is an authority structure that is set up of which we are answerable to. We find this in business relationships. Everybody has a boss. We find this in marital relationships. There is a headship and a hierarchy that takes place. But all of this sets a frame of reference for how God operates. And we, as His creations, 
are answerable to him, which should automatically jolt us into an understanding that if he created us, he has an ounce at least of ownership over us. He is the authority and we are held to his standard. The next one, sin originates within us and sin brings death, which is a separation from God. Anybody sin today? There's our need. Thank you people for admitting it. That's great. All the rest of you just sinned, right? Because you lied about it. So notice it separates us from God. This is why as Christians we do 1 John 1, 9 to restore the fellowship. The main problem of mankind is the separation because of the sin which brings death that separates us as unregenerate people. Does that make sense? Unregenerate is one of those Christianese $5 words, right? But it's our lostness. In our lostness, we're already separated. So therefore, we already have that need. The next one, the glory of God, I'm sorry, God declares one righteous by faith alone apart from works. God does all the work. God alone is righteous. And the only way that you and I can be accepted before him is we must have a righteousness like his. Any fracture in that, anything that is diminished, of a righteousness we would try to bring automatically negates us from his acceptance. This is why good people don't go to heaven. Hell is going to have a lot of great people in there. They may have been moral. They may have fed the poor. They may have lived self-sacrificially. But works cannot get it because works are never perfect. Therefore, I need a perfect work of which is passed on freely to me by grace. Undeserved, I shouldn't have it, but yet it is made available freely to me and to you. And that work is the perfect work of Jesus Christ. He takes my sin, He gives me His righteousness. The next one. The glory of God is the centerpiece and goal of all existence. All things exist for His glory. All things were created to give Him glory. In fact, for a created thing to ascribe glory to anything else but Him is to be high treason. Why is that? Because there is nothing greater than our Creator. If He is the greatest, He is the only one that should receive the glory. But here's what we see that is interesting, and this is the theme all throughout Scripture from beginning to end. God's glory is maximally realized in the promised coming kingdom. There will be a day when history stops, when grace runs out. And it's because Jesus Christ has ripped through the sky and has returned to earth and his feet have touched down on the Mount of Olives and all of his enemies have been physically dismissed. And he builds his kingdom. I am so tired of this, we're building his kingdom language. You and I are not building his kingdom. You and I are not advancing his kingdom. You and I don't have anything to do with the kingdom, but to be citizens of the kingdom by the grace of Jesus Christ, because when he comes, he builds his kingdom. Only he advances his kingdom. 
This whole idea that we're advancing his kingdom is trying to get people into the mindset of thinking that we could bring about the kingdom by having a more righteous, moral government, or just by being good people, or by taking care of the environment more. I hate to, I hate to step on the politically correct people, but it's all going to burn. And 2 Peter 3 tells us very clearly, the only hope that fallen, groaning creation has in its deterioration is only the renewal that Jesus Christ can bring by His physical presence once again on earth. That's it. And that is how God will receive maximum glory. So now we've spanned a gap of 400 years between Malachi and Matthew and all the history that went on there. And God is reintroducing himself onto the scene. I want to show you something very interesting. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And honestly, folks, we might only get through a couple of verses today. That's okay, right? That's less I have to prepare for next week, right? That's good. Just bring the same notes you had. Hebrews 1, 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers, in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days. Are you living in the last days? You are. Did it have to hit the year 2000 in order for it to be that? No, the Bible tells us. In these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the world. Let me point your attention to three major facets here of Jesus Christ. Number one, when Jesus Christ showed up on the scene of history in a bodily form, we immediately entered into the last days. That's when the last days started. There is something about Jesus Christ, about the fact that God's presence was largely rejected by Israel, and his glory moved out of the temple and left over the Mount of Olives. As a judgment sign to the Jews, his reintroduction in a new way, the glory in a bodily form, just like you and I, only he is deity, appearing before people. There is something about that that is incredibly apocalyptic in nature. Him showing up in a way that no one ever conceived would be possible. Here he is. Now here's why this is fascinating. In the garden, God says, the Trinity has a conversation. Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. Immediately you have a flesh form that is taken on of which the Trinity knowing all things would understand that at one point Jesus Christ would inhabit such a body to walk this earth. But not only that, the purpose in doing so, our original lot in creation was for the purpose of exercising dominion on the earth. Anybody bored yet? Making sure... I got a lot to cover, baby, so stick with me, right? So here's the whole idea. If you need more coffee, we got it. 
We got six pumps full, so go out there. If you need to just put your mouth underneath there and start pumping, go for it, right? I don't need a cup. IVs are available. Just ask God, he'll put one in. But the whole idea is kingdom-centered, kingdom-focused, this idea of ruling and reigning. And this being the ideal that God wanted for Israel to be a blessed nation, to be set up in such a way as where all the nations take notice and said, there's nothing like we've ever seen here that's going on with them. Their God personally works with them, blesses them, loves them, cares for them, defends them, fights for them. He constantly saves them. And they forfeit this by idolatry. Incredible. So now God is going to enter history in a different way. Notice, we're in the last days. The second thing that we see about this, He's spoken to us in His Son. He has spoken to us. Jesus has got something to say. Or let me say it this way for you. Jesus Christ is everything that Yahweh God wants to say to the world. Has everybody got that? Jesus Christ is everything that Yahweh God wants to say to you and I. He is the very embodiment of what it is to be the Word of God. Notice the next thing that it says here in this verse, in verse 2. Whom he appointed. He has given Jesus a particular position in history. He is the heir of all things. He is the one that when he returns will sit down triumphant over all evil on the throne and he has the right to rule. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be talking all about Jesus's right to be the ruler. But look at this last part here. Through whom also he made the world which means that Jesus Christ is indispensable in creation. Now think about what we've seen here. Think about it. Not only is Jesus everything that God wants to say to us, not only is there something in times related to his appearance on the scene, not only has he alone been designated the rightful ruler of all things, but on top of that, He's the creator. Jesus Christ screams God. He screams Yahweh. He screams I am. All of that is embodied in him. Now take your Bibles and turn to John 1. Mitch, do you care to turn up the the air one notch? Saw some icicles forming on some noses up here. John chapter 1. Let me give you some history on John 1. This is not going to be where we start at verse 1 and we go all the way through the book of John. I promise you we would be here for probably about five years tackling that project just on chapter 1. So, if that's the case, let me give you some things. Number one, 90% of this gospel is unique to the other three. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what are known as synoptic gospels. 
the reason why they are known as the synoptics is because you find so much related material. You find so much interaction that's going on of the same events, the same words, the same teachings of which Jesus said. You only get slightly different perspectives from those things. But you find that John is a whole different type of approach as far as documenting the life of Jesus. What's interesting is, is if you do some research into the early church fathers, a guy named Irenaeus. Irenaeus was a guy who was a disciple of a man named Polycarp. Feel free to pick up these kids' names and name your kids with them, okay? Polycarp is the last known person who was a direct disciple of the Apostle John before he died. The Apostle John is the longest living apostle that we know of, and we're not even for sure how he died, okay? Polycarp was directly discipled underneath him. Polycarp's story is very great. If you ever get a chance to read anything uh, about his life or history, it's really amazing. Irenaeus recorded from Polycarp, who got this from John, that John actually wrote his gospel, and I didn't know this. Uh, I'd always been told it had been written way beforehand, and people have got reasons beforehand. But, but they said that he actually wrote the Gospel of John when he was released from the island of Patmos, where he was, uh, where he was serving out a, a penal servitude for his refusal uh, to compromise on the Gospel of Jesus Christ and to not shut his mouth about the testimony or the witness. And you find that four or five times as he's writing out Revelation. He brings it up in there why he is on that island or what the problem is that put him there. Uh, when he returned to Ephesus as the senior pastor there, that's what it's believed that he penned this gospel. So chances are the gospel of John could very well be the uh, most recent written book of the New Testament. Now I know that didn't heavily impact anybody, but it's important that you know that because if that's the case, it's probably the last thing that John wrote and it's probably the most important thing that he felt like he had to say under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Look here in chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, if we were doing our devotionals, we would have read that, and we would have said, awesome. And we would have prayed and went on about our day. But we miss a lot of significant things, maybe, if we handle the text like that. Number one, what's the first thing you observe about this text? I'm going to make you study today. In the beginning, why is that significant? Because there was a beginning. There was a starting point, which reminds you of what? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's a, that's a verse I'm working on with Nathaniel right now. I recite it to him, and he just goes, yeah. So I guess he gets it. He agrees with it. In the beginning, has a starting point. In fact, here's an interesting thing. This may very well be the last book that John ever wrote if he wrote it when he returned to Ephesus after coming off the island of Patmos. But here's the interesting thing. The way he starts the book, it is the earliest starting point of possible, fathomable history that all the Bible records. Does everybody understand that? Does that make any sense? Because I still don't get it. Okay. 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's a history. That's a point in time. This took place at this point. That's not what John does. John says, in the beginning was the word. That means whatever point was notched out through the Holy Spirit in Moses as the beginning point of history. John is actually talking about before that. Or think of it this way. How far back can your mind think before Genesis 1-1? Everybody take a moment. If you have to look real weird about it, do so. Breathe a little deeper. Can't do it. But think back before God spoke the words, let there be light. Right? That's scary. We're talking about before that. We're talking about however far back you could possibly fathom before the moment of creation, Jesus already was, was, was before that. Does that make sense? He was already past tense at the present moment that we can think about before the time of history ever began. Why is that? Because he's eternally God and he is eternally existing with God in that moment. In the beginning has greater implications than just this mark in history on a timeline and that's it. No, it stretches in an eternity past when time did not exist. Does that make sense? Now this is going to be important when we get to verse 4, so everybody stick with me, okay? And we should get to verse 4 today. We're going to hope on it. But it says, in the beginning, the what? Word. John uses this word in the Greek, logos, on purpose. The Holy Spirit knew exactly what he was doing when he framed this word. Now let me ask you a question. This is kind of dangerous. Why did he use why, I mean, why is Jesus Christ called the Word? Why is that? What do you think? Out, out of what you've studied, out of what you've seen, out of what you learn, out of what you know? What's that? Truth. Who said it? Truth. It's because when we talk about the Word, we talk about what is true. In other words, no falsehood whatsoever. Do you realize that that is a high bar to set for the person of Jesus Christ? Everything he's going to say, everything he is going to think, everything he is going to do, everywhere he is going to do, or everywhere he's going to go, is going to be in accordance with a standard of truth that is perfectly in line with the Father. In fact, doesn't he even, and I'm, for, for the life of me, I'm like, good grief, what is going on here? Doesn't he say, I didn't come to do my will, but the will of the Father? It's not that Jesus was inferior to God. It's that he made himself voluntarily subservient to God, to exalt God in the whole situation. Not doing his own thing. That's incredible. What would be another reason why Jesus is called the Word? What do we think? Have we ever really given much thought to it? Well, here's an interesting thing. We talked about the introduction of Alexander the Great. Everybody remember that? I rambled on forever about that. Okay. When we talked about Alexander the Great, he brought in this whole cultural reconception of how people live life. And it's what is commonly called Hellenism. It dominated everything. In fact, even when the Romans came in, people didn't start speaking Romish or Roman or whatever you would want to call it, however we would say it. 
they still spoke Greek because of how much it dominated everything. In fact, it was only just a few generations after when Greek came into the situation that all of a sudden they said, we need a Greek Bible because nobody but the Pharisees or the rabbis are reading Hebrew anymore. We need something up to date in our language. And so they had to go through and they put 70 scholars to work to translate from Hebrew into Greek. This is how dominant this was. But also what brought about was Greek thought, philosophy. Aren't you glad you came today? Socrates, Philo, people like that. People that we really don't care about spending much time studying in history, maybe. But they were all about rational thoughts. What is real? What is true? How can you know that this is what it is? Where is your place in the world? And what's interesting is, is anytime they dealt with this idea of what was meant by logos in the Greek, the word in the Greek, was the idea of the rational principle of which holds all things together. In fact, here's some some Greek writings that I've found on this. It is rationality that rules over existence. It is the basic defining principle related to the order of the cosmos. It is the rational principle of impersonal energy. Now that all sounds like hokum to me. It all sounds like frou-frou fluffy mental stuff to me where everybody's just trying to get around God. But stop for a second. You can't think of it how you do now. You got to put yourself in the sandals of people walking around in the first century. I didn't wear sandals today. Tom did. Blasphemy. And socks. Jews of Jerusalem track shoes. Okay, you're not allowed to talk anymore. All right. So I'm just playing. Put yourself in their sandals. If you are growing up in a Greek culture... You have got this certain expectancy of what you know and what you don't know, of what you subscribe to and what you don't subscribe to. What you believed back then defined everything about how you lived. And so what they thought was that God, if there existed one, was impersonal. It's just a force. It's just energy is all it is. Well, there's something that just holds all the things together. And it's what allows us to think rationally. Okay. That's the Greek idea there. But what's interesting is, is the Greek word logos also had a bearing over the Hebrew mentality as well, over the Jewish mentality. Here are some of the things that I found. It is the Old Testament concept of divine revelation. It would be in line with what Kenny said, with truth. It's embodied in the person of Jesus Christ dealing with creation, revelation, and redemption or salvation. In other words, it is the whole that when God spoke, that logos is the very thing that brought about all the events that we see captured in the book of Genesis. It is God and His Word unfolding the understanding of Himself. Does that make sense? See, the Greeks tried to put something on it, but they had this idea of, well, it's got order. It allows us to think. It it helps us to make sense of life, but we don't really know what it is. The Jews are like, no, we know exactly what it is. And when God spoke, things happened. That which wasn't, he speaks, it is. That's how it gets done. John uses this word on purpose. Why? Because it covers both mission fields. Does everybody see that? 
If you think in this way, it covers your mission field. If you think in this way, it covers your mission field. Why is that? Because the purpose statement of the Gospel of John and many other things he did that are not written in these books, but these things are written, why? That you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that by believing you would have life in his name. John 20, verses 30 and 31. That is the purpose statement of why he wrote this gospel. So at the very beginning, when you are confronted with this idea, in the beginning was the logos. And we're sitting here saying, okay, that's kind of a weird way, but we understand that's Jesus. And we move in. No, 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 no. Stop and go back and think about what is going on in first century people's lives. It satisfies this mental criteria. It satisfies this mental criteria. Why is that? Because the goal is that people would have some sort of fleshed out substance of what the Logos is. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay. Everybody brought their thinking cap today, right? I know it's like 9, 10 in the morning. We're okay. Everybody with me? Anybody bored? I'll pray and wrap it up. See, you can't say that because that's rude, but I'll go ahead and ask because it's funny. All right, moving on. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Ha, see? Two separate. Was with God. Is that true? I mean, we look at the next little line, and the Word was God. So we have that together. So what does it mean, was with God? If you remember a, a while back, we went over a very basic makeup of what the Trinity is. And the Trinity is God in one essence. They exist in one essence together. However, there are three persons, and they're all existing as one. Now, do you understand that? Good, because I don't, okay? I don't fully grasp it. But here's what we see is the Greek word that is used here for the word with. Everybody see that? And the word was with God. It's the Greek word pros, okay? It's a preposition. And the idea there is the idea of moving toward God. In fact, what is actually seen here, and one commentator wrote this out, was it is an interactive reciprocity that exists between God and the Word. You say, what in the world does that mean? Sum it up in one word, intimacy. It means, get this, that if we are talking about in the beginning, a time on the timeline here, before in eternity past, we are talking about that there was an intimate fellowship experience that was vibrantly enjoyed between the Father and Son before creation ever came on the scene. Does that make sense? Okay, now do this. Take your Bible, put, a little, put your little bookmark string here, note something like that, turn over to John 17. This is the high priestly prayer of Jesus before he is arrested and taken away. And he says something extremely profound that if we didn't pay attention, we would miss it. But it's important that we see this because we are talking about the basis of who God is and what it looked like in eternity past before anybody existed. John chapter 17, and he's praying, and look at verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, sorry, I'll give everybody a minute. Everybody there? Okay, good. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am. Now that's talking about the apostles. So that they may see my glory. Notice that. 
which you have given me. Now watch what he does here. For, here's your causal conjunction, you loved me before the foundation of the world. Without me saying anything further, does everybody get the weight of that? Here's what it's saying in our timeline. In eternity past, God loved Jesus perfectly. And Jesus loved God perfectly. No one has said, let there be light. No one has created angels yet. No one has spoken anything that currently exists, whether seen or unseen, into existence yet. Does that make sense? And before all of this that we look around and we know, and and let's be honest, almost everything we read about the Bible is material in nature. Geography, places where they were, kings that ruled at this time, bad people, Satan, all this stuff. They're all created at some point. No, we're talking about do away with everything that you know that is created, whether invisible or visible, and think back to what the relationship between the Father and Son was. It was an exercise of perfect love eternally. They have always loved, always. And they didn't need to bring somebody. Well, we need somebody to love. Let's create Jeremy. Oh, this is going to be a difficult one, right? They didn't do that. They perfectly loved one another in and of themselves. Jesus says, Father, you loved me before the foundation of the world. We already had this agape going on. The word was with God. He was with God like this, with him. Intimate with him. In harmony with him. Perfectly in love. Man, we ain't made out the first verse yet. But go back to John 1. And the word was God. Jesus Christ is God. Now let me ask you a question. Is God true? Does God speak truth? Can God speak anything that is not true? Okay, so if we conclude that Jesus is God, and that God is true, Jesus is what? Get this, don't miss this. It's on the first page of your notes here. Truth is a person, not a concept. Truth is a person, not a principle. We have time for this? We don't have Sunday school today. Anybody got anything to do? It's probably stupid hot outside. It's cool in here, right? Let's talk a little bit. Has anybody heard of this mess about gender pronouns? Anybody heard this? It's about a 17-minute video that I watched the other day, gender pronouns. And it's not that you can call anybody him or her anymore. You have to say Z and Zer. There are 31 identified classes of gender pronouns to be used in New York City, and you actually have the possibility of being fined and legal charges pressed against you if you don't call a person by the correct pronoun. What is Satan doing? I guess. But I can't wait to be like, if I get to see him in eternity, it needs to be in eternity. You probably beat me to a pulp right now. I want to go, that's so stupid. 
And so what's interesting is I'm watching this video, and it's two professors from the same place, the University of Toronto in Canada. This is huge right now. I don't know if you've heard of this man. His name is Jordan Peterson. He's, he's not an evangelical Christian, but he holds the Bible in high regard. I give him a little bit of credit for that. But, but he, he holds to this way of thinking that's just rubbing people the wrong way. They can't handle it. And so it's him debating against a transgender professor that's also at the same uh, college, and they're talking about respecting people and sharing pronouns and talking about all this stuff. And what's interesting is, is that Jordan Peterson brings up the idea of truth. The reason why I don't address a person like that is because it's not true of who they are. Is truth a principle? In that context, it is. But what if we went one step further on the national news channels? Do you not realize that truth is a person? It is the Lord Jesus Christ who created all things and made us and designed us the way that we are. And you cannot escape His design because it is on purpose if he designed you on purpose that way that means he has a purpose for you that way god's not haphazard he's not accidental in his makeup of people truth is a person and see nobody wants to talk about that if you're going to college you're going to be taking a philosophy class bring up the idea that truth is a person be ready you're going to get your lunch eaten and probably an f Truth is a person. Truth is a person. This isn't me coming up with this. This is God saying it. And eternity passed before you could ever begin to imagine the idea that encapsulates all rational thought that holds the universe together and divine revelation that reveals to us what redemption and salvation would even possibly look like has been brought together in this relationship that God himself perfectly had within the scope of the Trinity where they exercised an eternal love for one another and intimacy and fellowship and he didn't need any of us in order to get the job done. That's what we're talking about. Does everybody see why my brain cells are fried this week? No amount of coffee could restore that, man. God is deep. But are we thinking about Him deeply? Jesus Christ is profound, but are we thinking about Him profoundly as He deserves to be? He was in the beginning with God. In other words, there was nothing that God was doing that Jesus Christ was not a part of. And then look at verse 3. He moves in to show you the grand idea of how we would begin to know that there is a God is inseparable from Jesus. Look what it says. I'm all the way in. What am I doing? Here I am. John 1.3. All things. Now stop for a second. Does all mean some? Does all mean a few? All means all. You'd be amazed at how many people don't even get that. All things came into being through him. There is not one thing that has been made that has come into being apart from Jesus. Not one thing. Yet I have not taken a science course or read a science book yet that starts with, well, everything was created through Jesus. If he's true, and if all things were made through him, why are we not starting there? We have a cultural problem. All things came into being through him and... Apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In other words, this is John saying, I'm telling you the truth. Let me reiterate it for you. If you can think of anything that is, it is because Jesus allowed it. 
to be so. He is the creator. Well, what about Satan? Why is he so bad? Who gave him that pitchfork? Right? That kind of thing. Satan doesn't have a pitchfork. But at least I'm getting your attention. What does the scripture say? You were a a glorious cherub angel until sin was found where? Within you. That's the problem. Was Satan, was Lucifer created through Jesus Christ? Absolutely. Created for good purposes. What did Lucifer do with that? He sinned. It's his fault. It's his responsibility. He is the one who has to answer for that. It's not Jesus' fault. Just because Jesus created doesn't mean he is dictating how people live and move and have their being. He's always encouraging us towards truth. But get this, it is the rejection of truth that moves us in that direction. Why? Because if you're not believing in the truth, you're in unbelief. Unbelief has to have an opposite. That opposite is truth. Everybody with me? I apologize if this is like philosophical today. Everybody raise your right hand. Raise your right hand. Raise your right hand. No slackers. Even you that are asleep, raise your right hand. I promise that I will re-listen to this sermon on the website because I don't understand anything that you're saying. In Jesus' name, amen, right? Let me show you some verses. Take your Bible, turn to Psalm 33. Psalm 33. Stick with me. We don't have much longer. I want you to see this. Psalm 33, everybody look at verse 6. And if you have your pen, now's the time to click it and mark it. By the word of Yahweh, the heavens were made. And by the breath of His mouth, all their hosts. Let me back you up so that you get that again. By the word of the Lord. By the what? Word. When God spoke. This is the whole idea that we're talking about the Logos in the New Testament. All these things were made through Jesus Christ. By His word. By the truth that He unleashed. The heavens were made. It's what we call ex nihilo creation. There was nothing. He speaks, there is something. It's not that he makes the world out of scattered Lego blocks and gives them a form. There were no Lego blocks and there was no table to put them on. That's the idea. But notice what he says after that. And by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. Does everybody see how that parallels and says pretty much the same thing? By what he speaks. Jesus Christ is the perfect embodiment of everything that God speaks forward. Now, turn with me to Hebrews 11. Go the other way. Hebrews 11. See, aren't you glad you promised to listen to this again? Hebrews 11. This is a whole other argument. I won't belabor it too much. You can read it in the notes. Hebrews 11, look at verse 3. By faith we understand that the worlds, the word there is literally the ages, is the idea, were prepared, get this, by the Word of God. And here's the reason. So that what is seen 
was not made out of things which are visible. That's the same idea. It's not that previously things that were there, it's not like this chair was then manipulated in order to become a ladder. That's not the idea. The idea is there was nothing. And it is the Word of God that doesn't just prepare people, makes them, or the world, but every age that will ever come to pass or has ever been is a product of Him simply speaking and when He speaks is truth. All things, ages, epochs, eternities, it does not matter, were made through Jesus Christ. Does everybody get this picture now? Is anybody feeling this weight that we see just how pivotal it is when John writes about Jesus and he's stepping into history? We haven't even gotten to him taking on flesh yet. That's verse 14. John just wants to scramble our brains with the fact that he's the creator and he's in intimacy with God before eternity ever began or in eternity past. Okay, everybody go back to John 1. We'll finish up here. And let me just say this real quick. You may not fully understand the whole reason behind how the Greek thought surrounding the word logos is, but think about what you know about Greek gods. Who are some Greek gods that you know? Zeus, Poseidon, right? That guy's got a pitchfork. Huh? Hera, okay. Apollo, Hermes, familiar with this? What's that? Aphrodite, naughty girl, right? But here's what we know about them. Those are the manifestation of Greek gods. Think about how they think. You've got to have different gods over different areas. That's how people think when they conceive gods of their own doing, which are probably another name for demons is what it actually is. But what's very interesting about this as well is the idea that Greek gods would have anything to do with human beings is just utterly ridiculous. They were considered above that. We don't want anything to do with them. We don't have time for them today on the docket. That's how, they, that's how it was perceived that they operated. So when you talk about that the Logos is God pre-existing and then he comes into a fleshly form as a person, that completely destroys Greek thought altogether. What? God becomes flesh? What? How is that possible? It's possible because it's beyond the God that you could possibly conceive. He is the God of all creation, not just over this or over this or over this. He is the only true God. So if that helps you a little bit, maybe it will. Chapter 1, verse 4. Notice the was is in past tense again. In him was life. Stop. In him was. In him was Everybody following me? Which means, get this, not only in eternity past were the Father and the Son exercising an intimate love relationship that was perfect, but also life existed in eternity past. Now why is this important? He is the life, right? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. We, we know that, but have you ever thought about the implications of it? He is the life in eternity past. 
When we talk about the idea of eternal life, if you believe in Jesus, you will have eternal life. We always think of it in this idea, or, or at least I do. I don't want to put words in your mouth. But we think of this idea of when you believe, we talk about that it's not a life that you will receive in the future. It is a life that is right now, right? I came to give them life and life abundantly, to live an abundant life in the here and now by walking with the Lord. The possibility has now come into being with us. It has a starting point with us. But that eternal life doesn't just carry us in the here and now. It carries us into the future. Hold on to your hats. It's called eternal life because it also carries off into the past. Does everybody see that? The life that we have as eternal life when we believe in Jesus Christ has been brought with them from the past because it always existed with them and now has been graciously delivered unto us for one reason only. We believed in Christ. We responded to Him. It is a free gift that is given. It is something that has always existed and will always move forward. Why is that important? Because this idea that you can lose your salvation is insane if that's true. Why is that? Because the eternal life that you're talking about forfeiting or giving up, or I just want to go sin and do whatever I want. I'm just so crazy. Whatever that is, it's always been. How can you get rid of it? We have this perception of, well, I don't have to be taking advantage of it in the future, and so therefore I can forfeit it. Stop. You can't do anything about the fact that it's always existed. How in the world do you think that your temporal sin can overcome the eternal life that stretches in both directions? Now, I don't know about you, but that's cool. I don't understand it. But that's deep. In Him was life. It was. It existed then. And when He has stepped into the stage in order to address the world once more in a form that is like ours, but is unlike us completely. He has brought this eternity of life with him to freely give to all who believe. I can't grasp that. God is bigger than my brain. Good gravy. My brains feel like gravy. Verse 4, in Him was life. And this is where we have to stop right here. And the life was, past tense, the light of men. Life is light. Light is Christ. The Word is the life, is the light is Jesus. Do I grasp all that? I promise you, I don't. But here's what I do find. Skip down to verse 9. There was the true light, which coming into the world, notice that speaks forward of the incarnation of deity, enlightens every man. Stop for a second. The introduction of Jesus Christ into the world does something profound to the inhabitants of the world. And that is the fact that His presence, the fact that He has been here in the flesh, does something that enlightens every person. It brings light to every person. 
Now, what do we know this is? Well, how many people have heard of general revelation? General revelation? Let me explain to you what general revelation is. The fact that we look out into the creation and we see that it has design, that it has order, that it is intricate, and that it needs a certain amount of parts in order to function to begin with completely destroys the evolution argument of creation altogether. God has made himself known just in creating because he is a creator of those things. Does that make sense to everybody? So general revelation, the fact that there's stuff, testifies that there must be somebody greater than that stuff who made that stuff. Now that is the technical theological definition right there. But there's also something else that has been enlightened that we often miss, and it sits right here. And that is your conscience. How do you know when things are wrong? You ever had to get on your kid for doing something, you bring it to their attention and they they stop? And then mine looks at me like, are you really going to do something? But they know. How do we know? How is it that we're getting ready to step into an area that we know we shouldn't have anything to do with? There are red flags and alarms going off all over the place. You know what that is? Well, that's just our biological chemical processes all firing off at one time and synopsis in order to tell them. No, 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 no. It is a product of design. It is the light letting you know what is good and what is bad, what is right and what is wrong. Let me show you one more passage and then we'll end. Go to Romans 2. And I wasn't even planning on this. I'm sorry, Mitch. But this verse is so overlooked by people. Romans chapter 2. Look at verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, stop, who has the law? Jews have the law. Gentiles do not have the law. Now watch this. When Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, These, not having the law, are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience, there it is, bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. In other words, applauding them or chastising them, telling them that it was right for them to do that or it was wrong to do that. Pagans don't need to be told not to kill. A lot of them do, but there's something inside all of us that know that murder is wrong. Why? God wrote it there. It's already there. It is a revelation of Himself to us. But notice what it says. Uh, Alternately accusing or defending them. Verse 16. On the day when... According to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. What does that mean? It means that every single person is held accountable because even if you were blind and could not see anything of design, your conscience is internal and it testifies to God's 
existence. Jesus Christ is simply a visible manifestation of the truth that has always existed. Does everybody see that? So what is the big application for today? Number one, I didn't plan on stopping at verse 4. I was hoping to make it to at least 6. There's, there's better applications to get there. But here it is, guys. Have you ever taken the time to research and to think of Jesus deeply? Meditating upon Him. Pondering over Him. His delight is in the law of the Lord and He meditates on it day and night. Have you ever allowed for something like John 1 to just saturate your thoughts? Because I tell you this, it has a humbling effect. I'm floored. And maybe it seems weird because I've been all threaded up in it all week and trying to digest it and deal with it and sort it out. And every time that I feel like I'm scratching a bit of the surface away. There's more, and there's more, and there's more. And I'm like, good grief, how deep is Jesus? And God's like, he's super deep, he's God, right? And how often I forget those basic things, like I'm trying to comprehend him when he's incomprehensible, and yet he wants to be known by every person. You know what it tells me? It tells me my Savior's great. It tells me that he's greater than what I can understand. He's greater than what I can think. He's greater than I can even begin to verbalize to you guys. I feel like I'm doing such an injustice to him. And that it was only by the inspiration of the Spirit that God, that God through John could word it as perfectly as he did. He satisfies the criteria of what the world is needing and what they think is going on. No, truth is a person. It's all found in him. That's it. Maybe that makes sense. Maybe it doesn't. But I encourage you to pray about it, ponder it, read it, meditate on it. Go over the notes. Show me where I'm wrong, please. Thinking after a while it was just a bunch of gobbledygook I was throwing on the papers. I don't know. But the idea of God stepping into eternity to be known. He wants to be known. It's incredible. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus who wants to be known who is beyond what we could think. Who existed with you and is you in a perfect fellowship capacity. Having life in and of himself. And that life is freely offered by faith in his name. That's too much. It just pours over in grace. Being undeserving. Being unloving that I am. Being unwilling that I am. Stubborn that I am. Haughty that I am. And the fact that that would even be made available for the world to see and experience. Praise God for His glorious grace in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, Father, prompt our hearts, provoke our hearts, convict our hearts to be a people that are saturated with how you have revealed yourself in the person of Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen.